0: We are in our third week of the R12 journey, and if you're joining us for the first time today, it's a great time to join us. We're going to talk today about how we get God's best. The last couple of weeks, we talked about what is true spirituality and how do we find a life-giving spirituality rather than something that just confines us, something that's just about the rules. And that's really what the whole series about is about. And then last week, we talked about the fact of surrender and we looked at the life of Abraham. And if you're in your small groups, you discuss that whole issue of what does it mean to be all in with God? What does it mean not to hold anything back? And what does that mean for our lives? And today, we're going to look at An amazing story in the Old Testament, and the story starts in 605 B.C. in Babylon, and it's the story of a teenager, and several teenagers actually, and how they learned in the midst of very difficult situations to live in God's best, to get God's best. And that's really the theme of today, is getting God's best, understanding what that means, and could i could i just could I just assume that we don 't think that relationships that don't work we don 't think that marriages that don 't last we don 't think that fears that control us or, or loneliness that haunts us or addiction that imprison us or job that bore us or or debt that consumes us we don 't think that guilt that depresses us or futures that discourage us we don't think any of that is god 's best right? Can we at least agree on that and yet and yet it, the, the reason I even bring that up is because the reality is if, if I gave each and every one of you a sheet with that list on and a pen, I'll bet that most of us in this room would check at least one, two, maybe three or more of those things that are regularly part of our lives. And isn't it true that a lot of times we as Christians struggle to actually live in what we believe and what we understand to be God's best. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. And it's an amazing story because this, this teenager, back in 605 B.C., just to set the historical context, the Persian Empire was growing. The Babylonian Empire was growing like crazy. The guy, we've all heard his name, King Nebuchadnezzar, was marching across the world, conquering nation after nation. And this this guy, this this country, this this conqueror, Was not a nice guy. I mean, if you really look at the Babylon of the day, it was the home of the mystery religions. It was full of occult practices and all sorts of immorality. It makes Vegas look like a, look like a Puritan town. I mean, it's, it's not a good place. And at that same time, when we look at history, we see God's people, Israel, in Jerusalem. But the reality is for Israel, it had been centuries since the nation as a whole and since many of the rulers and leaders and even religious leaders of the Israel were actually walking faithfully with God. And so it begins, the story begins in, in Daniel 1 with, with, uh, with this statement. It says, Uh, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Did you notice who delivered Israel into the bad guy's hand? This is a hard one to swallow. It was God, wasn't it? And why? You know, if we look back at Deuteronomy 28 through 30, the theme of those three chapters is basically this. God is saying to us, if you will follow me, if you will follow me in complete surrender and you'll do things the way I ask you to and you'll, and you'll do them, then I'll bless you. I'll bless you in every way imaginable. I'll bless you when you're walking in and out of your home. I'll bless you in your business. I'll bless you in your family. I'll bless you all over the place in life. I'll give you my best because that's what I want to give you. But then the other flip side of that is God saying, if you will not do that, if you will refuse to come to me, if you will put other gods before me and not have a right relationship with me and not pursue that, then it says, I will withdraw my hand of blessing and all these things, all these bad things can come upon you. And, and and this is what's happening to Israel. And it's not that God is this capricious judge that we need to be afraid of. Think about, the if you really look at the history, so often when we read this story and we look at it, we think in a very narrow time frame because, because a lot of these stories we can read in about 20 or 30 minutes. But the reality is God is patient with us even before judgment comes, far beyond any of us would ever even imagine if we were in his shoes of being patient. He waited centuries. He sent hundreds of people to warn, to invite, to... to to do everything they could to live a godly life and invite people out of the destruction that they were living in, out of the pain of the sin they were living in, into something that was better. He had people model what was better so they could see it and experience it through somebody else's life. And yet they did not respond. And and so while God is patient, the, the truth still is there that at points he will allow judgment he will allow sometimes just simply through the withdrawal of his of his protecting hand he'll allow the consequences of of our sin and and the things around us to put pressure on us and and sometimes he will even take an active role in bringing judgment to us and it's more like he's putting up red lights trying to stop us before we careen off this clip cliff that we're going towards at, at 100 miles an hour and he's just continually putting pressure inviting us will you return to me because his whole plan in judgment is always will you return to me because i want you to have my best in life so god allows this to happen but but nebuchadnezzar was a really wise guy he was a really smart guy in fact even history if you read the history books in your school they'll even record this he understood that one of the main factors in conquering a large area of land with diverse cultures and diverse political histories was the fact of control and how you would control and keep them together without rebellion. So he had this really wise plan. In 597, we see him going to Jerusalem and he conquers it. And he did this everywhere he went. He took the wisest, the smartest, the best and, and it even says in one in three it says he says how he picked people. He says he looked for young men without physical defect, who were handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They were well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve. They had a leadership capacity to serve in a king's palace, and wherever he went, whether it was Israel or somewhere else, he gathered those young men. And we see in this story four young men, Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we know them best. All at the time, probably 14, 15, 16-year-old people, that he basically brings back to Babylon and he puts them in this training program. The whole training program idea was was they're going to be they we're going to change everything about them. We're going to we're going to teach them the wisdom books of Babylon. We're going to give them we're going to make them basically into new Babylonians. We're going to try to train them for 3 years in a way that they forget their god and they forget their loyalties. They become new Babylonians and then we can send these Israel people Israelite people some of them back to Israel to rule their own people and thereby put the worldview for the Babylonians throughout the entire kingdom. And he did this everywhere he went. And really the plan that we're going to look at today and the way that Nebuchadnezzar did this is really not much different than what we face in our world today and our kids face in the world today. And that's where the important is, important part of it is because, because think about it. Again, we talked about Babylon as this immoral place and this place with all sorts of occult this Vegas on steroids. Can you imagine sending... If you, if you have teenager, teenagers now or had them in the past, can you imagine sending your teenagers to Vegas unsupervised for three years and expect it to be a good result? And yet that's what exactly happened in Daniel and these three men's life. They went there and they showed us how in a hostile, dark world... That even as teenagers, they could live there and get God's best, live in God's best, and transform their culture. So we start seeing the story pick up and they, and they get there. And, and, and part of the plan for the Babylonians was not just to, to change some of the way they thought, but it was also to even change their diet. And so we see in verse 8 where where Daniel goes to the chief official, the guy in charge of this basically three-year brainwashing program, and says to him, you know what, I don't want to eat the way you're asking us to eat, and and I don't want to drink the wine, and I don't want to eat the meat that you you give us. And it wasn't because Daniel was a vegetarian, and it wasn't because Daniel didn't believe it was okay to drink wine, it was because for Daniel, he knew that that meat and that wine that they were serving them had been sacrificed to their gods, and so in Daniel Daniel's mind, he thought by even eating that, he would be violating the first of the two Ten Commandments. And so this was a deeply held conviction he had, and he was willing even as a teenager to stand up to these people who had conquered him Even with the threat of real cost. And we can see very easily in the text that that threat is very real because basically in the next verses it says the guy when he went to him and asked for this permission to just eat vegetables and water and not eat this food, the guy says to him, I can't do that because if I do and you look worse and you don't perform as well as the other students, they will kill me. The cost of making this stand was tremendous. It wasn't just a cost of saying, oh, can I, can I eat something different? Not only would they possibly kill the guy who allowed them to make this decision if they didn't perform well, but, but the threat of their life was even, even over something as simple as this. It was very real. These guys were not hospitable people. So Daniel, what does he do? You know, he, he, it's, it's, it's a deeply held religious belief. He doesn't get pushy. He doesn't get holier than, that, holier than thou. It says that he basically goes back to the guy and says, hey, how about a 10-day test? Let's just, just give us a 10-day test. And see how we're doing at the end of 10 days. And and then can you imagine the pressure? Because 10 days later, the text records that, that Daniel and these three guys looked healthier and better than everybody else in the training program. So you know what happened? All these wealthy people used to eating the finest foods of their countries who were taken into captivity and now in this training program lose their meat and lose their wine and lose their dessert. Can you imagine how popular that made those guys in that process? The Babylonian game plan was to change their thinking, but Daniel's story for us reveals how we get God's best. And again, I'm not keeping up with this. Sorry, I'll do better. I always do better in the second service. You know, I used to do all my PowerPoint. I used to control it all before I came here, and then I haven't done it for a year and now I forgot how to do it. I never keep up anymore. And the game plan for the Babylonians was to change three things. It was to change their thinking. It was to change their worship. And it was to change their lifestyle. You know, parents, as we look at this and as we talk about it today, the most important thing that we have as parents is control over what goes into the minds of our kids. It's the most important thing. Because we could sum up a lot of the parenting literature, a lot of the self-help literature, a lot of the goal and goal and change-oriented literature in one biblical statement. And that statement is, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So you will become. As a person thinks in our hearts, so you will become and you know when we look at our culture in america today it's interesting because because in america we have more depression than most nations we have more but the studies consistently show in america we have more social violence than most nations in the world we have a lot of things going on. We have more, more people eating and, and, and having eating disorders and, and, and hurting themselves because of views about themselves than most people in the world. And it's because what we eat is what we become physically and what we eat spiritually and intellectually is what we become in our identity as well and who we think we are. And so what did the Babylonians do? They changed their physical diet. They changed their mental diet. All with the idea of trying to help them create a new identity as to who they were to make a new Babylonians. In fact, we even see later, we see the fact that not only did they do that, but they tried to give them a new identity in their worship by changing their names. David's name was given to him and it originally meant, God is my judge. When he went to Babylon, they gave him a, they gave him a new name to change his identity. And that name meant basically that he was a protector of one of the Babylonian gods. And then we see also Hananiah, who we know better as Shadrach. Hananiah's Jewish name meant Yahweh has been gracious. They gave him the name Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, one of the Babylonian gods. They were so focused on this plan that they tried to change their identity. Let's let's look at this a second. What in our culture tries to shape our identity? One of the things that, you know, you could look at in terms of trying to determine that is, is even just what the aspirations of kids are nowadays. Thirty years ago, the aspirations of kids were all about, I want to be a policeman. I want to be a fire, fireman. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. What were the values? The values of our culture, the ideals of our culture were about protection, about safety. There was a recent book that was published, and, and the number one thing that uh, that preteens in America aspire to the number one thing is now the assistant to a, to the special assistant to a rock star we live in a babylonian world we the, the whole values of our culture are changing. We live in this virtual reality world of Garage Band, where you can be your own rock star on your own. We live in the world of Teen Vogue and, and Thrasher and, and Adult Swim and all sorts of things that are trying to shape how we think about ourselves and what we define as our identity and who we are and what we define as our identity in terms of who we worship as well. Our kids are living in a Babylonian world. And what we will be is what we think and what we take in. And it really, it really starts with us. It really starts with us as parents, what we think needs to change as well, because the reality is a lot of our kids are turning out to be that way because we're watching those things, we're looking at those things, and we're getting our identity from Vogue, from Cosmo, from from Fortune magazines and all sorts of stuff. And, and if we get our identity from those things, you know, the, the number one thing in parenting is that the kids are going to be like us. We can read all sorts of parenting magazines and get all sorts of parenting tips But our kids will be like us. All we have to do is look in the mirror and we will know what our kids will turn out like. If we're workaholics and people-pleasers, they will be like us. If we are anxiety-ridden people who worry all the time, our kids will grow up to be that way too. If we're people who have secret porn addictions and we treat our spouse or we treat other people or our boyfriends or girlfriends accordingly, according to those addictions, our kids will grow up to treat their... Relationships in the same way. Who we are as parents, what we bring in to our minds in terms of thinking and thoughts will shape our kids more than anything. God's game or God's game plan has always been different. The Babylon, Babylon tried to change their thinking, tried to change their worship, tried to change everything about them. But God has a different plan for us today. And that plan involves He wants us to prepare the next generation. And again, I'm behind, aren't I? He wants us to prepare the next generation to change the world. You know, there's a life lesson in this. There's a couple life lessons we've glossed over. One of them is, we don't have to be afraid of the culture around us. If Daniel and these three guys can go to a Vegas on steroids and get God's best then there's no reason why we cannot live that same way. The second life lesson is that the future of our world will be determined by who captures the heart of the next generation. It will. You know, our politicians right now, over the next month, you're going to hear a ton of talk about our children and our children's children and all the economic issues, and they're huge. They really are huge issues right now. But what about the spiritual and moral fabric of the next generation if we can capture that if we can cause that to be something that surrenders to God and something that lives life in God's way then we can transform the world we can create 15 and 16 year old kids who don't go out and make the excuse saying you know what life there's so much pressure out here uh, you know, uh, adults, we go around and sometimes we hear the, we hear the excuse, I travel a lot, I'm, s- I'm working so hard, how could I not have some of these addictions? The stress is so great in my life. How can I not have some of these habits? How can I avoid escaping in these, way, in, in these ways? How can, I, how can I even avoid that? Because there's so much stress in life. And, and we, we hear on a regular basis, I've heard this from teenagers, I've heard it from parents. How can we expect our kids to not have premarital sex? in high school when there's so much peer pressure to do that again these 15 and 16 year old guys went to babylon if they can do it we can do that you know it really comes down to the deuteronomy 28 choose this day who will serve are we going to care about what's going into our minds first so that we can then care about what's going into the mind of our children. The second one is God, God wants us to position, be positioned in places of influence. And the life lesson three is that protection of our children from the culture is absolutely impossible. It's impossible. But preparation for them to be in the culture is imperative. In fact, Daniel... We want to prepare our kids to be Daniels. We want to prepare our kids to be Jesus. Both of these biblical examples lived in dark, immoral cultures. They lived in the culture, separate from the world's values, but not holier-than-thou, not bunkering. Our tendency so often is to be afraid and to bunker. And why did they live, why did Daniel live in, in, in Babylon and, and, and succeed It's because he knew how to get God's best. He He knew that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fearing God and seeing God for who he is, that he's bigger than anything, is more important than fearing the evil and the danger around us. And he also knew that he had to live by his convictions and do it God's way. You know, the question for us is, who has God placed you next to? We could talk about our kids, but again, it starts with us. Who has God placed you next to in life? You know, so often one of the problems when we have messages like last week when we talk about complete surrender to God and being all in is that people tend to look at that and they say, well, if I'm going to be all in, then that means I'm going to have to leave what I'm going to be and I'm going to have to become a pastor and I'm going to have to become separate and I'm not going to be able to be in the job I'm in. But, but if God can place Daniel over not just his teenage years, but over 66 years in the Babylonian culture, three different rulers and empires to make a huge godly difference, then don't you think that God has placed you exactly where you are? For a reason? Don't you think that God has placed you as, as vice presidents and as marketing managers and as, and as managers and as workers in, in, in your exact settings, even though they may be dark settings, even though even though your company may do things that are against God's values at times? Don't you think God has placed you there and wants you to thrive there? You see, God's plan is not to take us out. His plan is to send us, place us, position us in dark places so that we can learn that the character and the promises of God are big enough that we can learn that God is the only one that needs to be feared and not the darkness around us, not the pressure, not the fear around us. You know, verse 21, we almost... uh, uh, Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. He also wants us to prosper. I'm jumping ahead again. Sorry, guys. Um, this is actually from your studies, from your stuff this last week. There's 21% of the people who took the online survey we had last week who only partially believe that God has, that they've given God control over their professional pursuits. I want to challenge you that maybe at least, at least let me take that one reason away. If you feel like your job is a place that's dark, that you don't even know how it can relate to God and what it should be. Some of us think that our job is not where we 're supposed to be because we can't see how God can be there. I want you to be free of that and I want you to start thinking instead, "Why do you have me here, God?" and ask that question over the next few weeks and see if we can actually see if you actually come to the place where you really start to see a four or a five rating as to why God has you where you're at. The next one, God wants us to prosper. The truth of it is that Daniel prospered for years. He had God's favor. It says when he actually got through his three-year training program that he went before this oral exam with Nebuchadnezzar, this evil, great, conquering ruler. And Nebuchadnezzar looked at him and his three friends, and they said, there are none wiser in all of Babylon. And he had favor. And then there's this little verse at the end of 21. It says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Which means the timeline is that Daniel went there somewhere around 605 B.C. to 597 B.C. And he stayed there having influence until 539 B.C. Basically, for a very, very long time, in a very dark culture, God placed Daniel to have huge, huge transformative influence. If we really tried to bump this up to today's world, the closest comparison we could, jump, we could make is a Christian being the right hand guy to Ahmadinejad in Iran. I mean, this is, this is the position Daniel was in. Last week we talked about the secret to Abraham's surrender to God was his confidence in God's promises and God's character. Daniel's confidence in God's promises and God's character. Were the secret to his convictions and his courage. And it's the same with you. You see, everyone's betting on a truth proposition today. We're either betting that, that Co- what Cosmos says or Seventeen says that, that we're going to be, if we're, if we're pretty enough and if, if, we're, if we're fashionable enough, we'll be successful and we'll be liked. Or, or we're betting on Forbes that, that if we have enough zeros and enough power behind our name, then 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 we'll be successful and we'll be happy. Or, or we're betting on what people tries to tell us as a truth proposition that, that if, we're, if we're popular enough, if, if, we're, if we can become a rock star and we can have this Facebook page with millions of people surrounding us as our friends then we 'll be successful and happy you know the world 's truth proposition the Bible talks about as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life but but there 's a different truth proposition. this proposition starts with the fact that do we believe that do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is did, did Jesus come to earth and live successfully and, and, and die for us and rise again and, and be seen over the course of his rising by 500 different people over 40 days? And, and, and do we believe that what the Bible actually shows us, that not only did Jesus tell us what was going to happen, he told us when it was going to happen, and he's, gonna, he's, he's even told us from now what will happen in the future. Can we trust that kind of a God who says, I love you that much to tell you that much information, I love you that much, to come and be like you and serve you. Can you trust me, he's saying, that my truth proposition really is for your good, really has your best interests at heart, and that really when I ask you to take up your cross and follow me, it's not a punishment, it's it's, it's not something that just makes this life to be drudgery, But it's something that really, if you will learn to surrender, if you'll learn to live from that place, if you'll learn to take up your cross, you really truly will find a good life. See, that's a radically different truth proposition than what we hear in the media. But, you know, convictions are different than beliefs. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Chip Ingram, actually the author of the material that we're using for this R12 series, tells a story of his own personal experience when he was in college. And he was part of this values clarification exercise with about 80 other students. And and the professor, the psychology professor, walks into the room and he says, okay, this side of the room over here is one, meaning you totally 100% disagree with what I'm about to say. And this side of the room over here is 100, meaning you totally agree absolutely with what I'm about to say. He says, now I want you to place yourself on the continuum of where you think about this statement. And he says... I think premarital sex is completely good, pl- completely appropriate. And Chip describes the reaction of the audience as 75 people moving to 100, saying they completely agree with this. And then there's this young couple holding hands who are in a Bible study with Chip who walk all, over the, all the way over to one, saying, I totally disagree that that's okay. And Chip describes his own dilemma as standing in the middle going... All the pretty girls are over there. If I go there, then they're going to think I'm not available. But I really don't believe that premarital sex is okay. You see, there's such a difference between belief and conviction. A lot of us have beliefs. But do we have convictions? And how are convictions developed? Convictions are caught First of all, more than they 're taught. Proverbs 13:20 says, "He who dwells with a wise man, with wise men will be wise, but the companion of a fool will suffer harm. Parents, our kids will catch their values, their convictions, from your actions, not your words. Single people, who you hang around with as your closest friends, will determine what you will become. And convictions are also gained by personal discovery. And we do that in a couple different ways. We, we try to, what are our habits of personal discovery? Do we love learning? Do we spend time learning from the wrong sources? Or do we spend time learning from secondary sources only? You know, over the past 11 years before I came to Quest, I had a privilege of doing consulting. And I, in that process, I got to meet some of the better known uh, Christian leaders in America today. And you know i i 'd read their books i 'd heard many of them speak in large settings but but that 's one thing to actually meet them and to know them personally is a is a totally different thing over the last couple of weeks we 've reinforced the theme of this series is is that true spirituality is about a right view of God, a correct view of God, and about relationship. You know one of the guys that I met who was one of the best known had this reputation in the Christian world as being kind of this hard-butt technocrat. He's the kind of guy that everybody said, this guy's not spiritual. He just builds, builds churches and does things because of, because of the technical stuff he does, and he's really not spiritual. And he had this reputation, but I, I got to spend two weeks with him over the course of about a year in small group settings and have a, a personal one-on-one meals with him a number of times. You know what? By the time I got done meeting him, By the time I got knowing him personally, got got done knowing him personally, this guy was one of the most patient, had a kindness and a generosity and a tenacity about fulfilling God's call on his life and serving Jesus to the best possible way he could through the church. You see, it's one thing for us to experience God through other people. It's another, it's another thing for each of us to experience God personally, to know Him not just in, in His judgment, but in His extreme, extravagant kindness. And one of the ways we do that, one of the ways we encourage you to do that is through reading the Bible for yourself. You know, it's one thing to hear me. It's another, and it's one thing for you to read a Beth Moore book or, a, or, 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 or an, an Andy Stanley book or whoever you read. You know, secondary sources are great. They all bless our lives. But you know, when push comes to shove, this guy that I met, I probably wouldn't defend him. If I hadn't known him personally, I probably would have the same stereotype of him. You need to know God personally. One of the ways we encourage that is for you to to have a Bible reading program. You can get these in the lobby, out there in the thing. And also, you know, I hate journaling. But one of the things I learned is when I met some of these guys, I walked away with notes. Every time. Because meeting these great leaders, I wanted to glean as much as I can. And so as much as I hate journaling, as much as I hate doing that, for me it's a discipline of, of I'm meeting with God. Sorry guys, my computer has an error there. They'll dismiss it in a second. Um, I want to, when I meet with God, I want to glean whatever I can. If, because when I go to the Bible, I expect to hear from him. So if you want to have a simple approach to journaling, we have these soap things as well. It's, just, just, it's a simple approach to how do we have a what we call in Christian speak a quiet time. How do we have downtime with God personally expecting to hear from him? What do we do to engage that process? I want to encourage you to do that. Transformation comes when the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, gives birth in our soul to convictions that you'll stand on and live by and die for. And through that, God wants to give us the best. Let me skip ahead for the sake of time. And I'm not going to try to do the PowerPoint. We're not keeping up with it anyway, folks. Are you okay with that? (laughs) Jesus summed up in John 8 what, what really Daniel teaches us all. And Paul sums it up the same thing in Romans 12. And he says to us in Romans 12, basically, I want you to live a no-yes proposition. No longer be conformed to the world. No, I'm no longer. I'm going to take. I'm going to make a no decision. I'm going to no longer be conform, Allow the world to conform itself to me. And the yes is yes. I'm going to allow God to transform my mind, renewing my mind. Now. Does it say that he's gonna, we're going to say no to stuff and we're going to become religiously weird and we're going to do all this stuff? No, listen to what it says. It says stop allowing yourself to be conformed to this world, but allow yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove, that you might test, that you might experience what God's will is. That which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And you can substitute whatever you want in that good, acceptable, and perfect. You can say good and acceptable, perfect relationships. You can say good, acceptable, perfect finances. You can say good, acceptable, perfect relationships in my job. Whatever. You can substitute it there. That's the goal of this no-yes proposition, is to learn to experience that. First, the question is, what or who do you need to say no to to experience God in your life? What do you need to say no to? You know, some of you, as, as we've been talking and, and, as we, and as we've been going through this series or maybe even today, you've, you've had things come to your mind that you know this is standing in my way of surrendering to God. This is standing in my way of experiencing God's best. And today, God's asking you to say no to that. And I want to do that by taking communion together. You received this. If you didn't receive it and you would like it, raise your hand. The ushers are going to come and and make sure you have it. And we're going to do communion backwards today. You know, normally we take the bread first and then we take the juice. We're going to do it backwards today. I want you to open it up. and And the juice for us represents this. It represents the fact that Jesus paid the price to forgive us of those things that we need to say no to. Those things that are standing in the way of our relationship with him. He paid the price. And so all I want you to do right now as you get this is I want you to open up and whatever that thing you need to say no to, I want you to simply breathe that under your breath and then I want you to take the juice and say, God, thank you for forgiving me, okay? Just go ahead and do it now. This is a great morning. i got juice on my shirt. Now I want you to take the bread. The bread represents the fact that Jesus came and lived like us. And what, one of the be- most beautiful things that he demonstrated to us is that you cannot live convictions on your own. You have to do it in relationship. You know, one of the reasons we actually have are pushing so hard on the small groups is because when you come to these places in your life that you've got to say something, you've got to say no to something, you're not going to make it half the time unless you're in relationships that are going to support you in saying no and walking free of that into God's best. And and Jesus, through the very way he lived in the body, when he was here in the body, showed us that life is is living life as friends with faith who encourage each other, who support each other, who live life together, who challenge each other, who are honest with each other so that we can live free. I want you to just take the bread and I want you to say, God, help me to learn to go deeper in those kinds of relationships today. And now as a follow-up, I want to encourage you to consider, a, consider a, a, a recommendation. Consider this a recommendation to try to, over the next week or so here, spiritually dry out. What I want to invite all of us to do is I want us to invite all of us to consider a three- or five- or ten-day media fast. We've talked today about what's going in and what's shaping our thinking. I want us to, to consider a, a three-, five- or ten-day media fast, Meaning meaning other than what you have to do for work, We don't surf the net, we don't watch the TV, we don't listen to the radio in the car. Now, I'm going to guarantee that if you do this, after about a day or two, you're probably going to find yourself angry. You're probably going to find yourself irritable. You know why that is? There's a reason why we eat and there's a reason why we turn things on all the time. It's because there's things about us that we don't like. There's things about us that we wish we would change. There's things about us that we don't want to face. And I want to encourage you to go on this fast to allow God's grace and His kindness to meet you in those areas instead of constantly turning something on to cover it up. And then, one final lesson. And the kids in the worship team can come right now if they're they're here. The kids in the worship team are going to lead us in in worship. There's one final uh, life lesson I want to talk about, and it's this. With biblical convictions and a winsome heart, this next generation can transform the world around us. Folks, this is not just for me when I get up here and talk about the priority of our kids. This is not just for me... uh, a tactic of growing a church. This is not just for me, uh, you know, a a glib statement that you're supposed to make. We can truly, through these kids, change the world around us. But you know what? Can I just be honest? I don't think we'd believe it. I'm not sure we'd buy that. I think it's easier for us a lot of times to blame the government, to blame the educational systems, and to blame Hollywood and say that, that things are out of our control. We cannot We cannot make a difference. But you know what? That comes back to an accurate view of God. It's so easy for us as Christians to slip into this whole mindset of bunkering and protectionism and trying to keep our kids from the world. And and we want to create these little bubbles of control so that maybe our kids in this evil, chaotic world will be okay. But how big is our God? How big is our God? You see, when we fall into that trap, we just have a wrong picture of who God is. We don't fear Him first. We fear the world first. We don't believe that He's big enough to create kids who can stand up to all the pressures they're going to face, no matter how bad they get, whether it's here, whether it's the inner city, whether it's Vegas, and live successfully for three years. We don't believe that they can do that, do we? But the invitation of last week was for us to stop controlling, for us to give up control to God and to have such an accurate view of God that we truly believe that He is bigger and He is capable of not just life being okay, but of Him shooting us as people shooting our kids, as people like projectiles through, the, through our culture, transforming it, not being influenced by the culture, living in it, but separate from the world's values in a way that is winsome, in a way that is beautiful, and that we as imperfect, completely grace-reliant people can be used by God to radically change a nation and a world. Because our God is bigger. And would you join, actually, in worship? This is not a performance. Would you join in worship as we declare that to God? Go ahead. Do we believe He's stronger? Do we believe that if He's for us, nothing can stand against us? Do we really have an accurate view of God? If we don't have it, parents, we'll treat things around us with fear. Fear. And we'll pass that fear on to our kids and they will not have the conviction to stand. We cannot protect them from the culture. In fact, God has called us to send them and us into the culture, into the dark recesses to be light. But we've got to have more than beliefs. We've got to have an accurate picture of God. Otherwise it won't happen. If you're here today and you came with a prayer need, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, let's go and let's believe God is bigger and let's work on our own relationship with God so that we know personally and we have those convictions ourselves to stand up when we need to stand up regardless of the cost, And do it confidently, not holier than thou, but as friends of faith. God bless. Have a great week.